Let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to come humbly before your word now and hear what you would have to teach us. So we pray that you would open the hearts of preacher and hearer alike to receive the word of the Lord. We pray that what we know not you would teach us, what we have not you would give us, and what we are not you would make us through our Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Uh, well, if you would, please turn to Psalm 25. If you're not turned there already, the text is printed in your bulletins. You can turn there in your Bibles as well if you want. When I was in seminary, I had a preaching professor named Jim Shaddix. And, uh, Dr. Shaddix was a very good professor. He still teaches at Southeastern. Uh, that said, I didn't like the preaching classes at seminary particularly, though I definitely liked Dr. Shaddix. Uh, one of the things I didn't like about the preaching classes is that they require you to preach 20-minute uh, sermons in front of the class, and I just didn't really like preaching in front of the class for a grade because it felt somewhat feigned, uh, a little inauthentic to me, and I definitely didn't like being limited to 20 minutes. Uh, I don't remember all of Dr. Shaddix's feedback on the sermons I preached in class, but there was one bit of feedback that stands out. Uh, as a rule, Dr. Shaddix objected to having point divisions in the sermon. Uh, he thought it was distracting. He thought it was somewhat formulaic. He thought it was a little bit lazy in terms of how you prepare sermons. And this was bad news for me because I really don't know how to preach any other way. And if you've been here any length of time, I don't think I've ever preached a sermon here at Emmanuel uh, without an outline or without point divisions. But it's not just that I don't know how to preach any other way. I think outlines are helpful. Uh, I think they help people to learn how to read the Bible and how to frame the internal structure and argument of a passage. They help people to understand language and grammar and the force of uh, logic that is contained in the passages of Scripture. So I'm going to keep giving you headings and outlines, uh, and I'm going to keep preaching for over 20 minutes, and none of us will tell Dr. Shaddix. Uh, why do I say all of that? Well, if you're like me and you like to outline passages of Scripture, maybe you do this even in your private study of God's Word, you just have to accept that you can't do that with Psalm 25, at least not in its entirety. The psalm is a complex psalm and there is no clear thematic structure to it. At least if there is one, I haven't been able uh, to find it. One factor contributing to the thematic complexity of the psalm is something that is not evident in our English Bibles. I assume many of you read from the ESV, perhaps the NASB, uh, perhaps the New King James, uh, but, but Psalm 25 in the original Hebrew is actually an acrostic. Do you know what an acrostic is? You have maybe the various letters of the alphabet and every word in a poem or, or a line in a poem or a speech or whatever. Uh, proceeds from a particular letter as you go through the alphabet. That's what we have here in Psalm 25. Uh, the psalmist David is going through the Hebrew alphabet, and each, each verse extends kind of through the acrostic from a particular letter, and this makes it a little harder to follow the, the flow of thought, a little harder to comprehend the overall theme of the passage. But there are certain themes that are apparent to any reader, readers in English, in Psalm 25, as we read this psalm, we can tell that David is in some measure of distress. He's in some measure of distress and hardship and trial. And his distress extends from three particular things that are going on in his particular circumstance. Number one, we understand from the very first couple of verses of Psalm 25 that David is being harassed by his enemies. Uh, so, so he's in trouble from his enemies. We don't know if he's being pursued by enemies, slandered by enemies. Whatever the case may be, he's being harassed by his enemies. Secondly, this is a little harder to define, but he is experiencing some sense, we understand from later in the psalm, some sense of loneliness, uh, some sense of feeling isolated. He calls it his affliction. Maybe he feels isolated from God. Maybe he feels 
uh, uh, lonely in that the people of God don't understand his particular trials and burdens, but he feels some sense of loneliness, isolation, and affliction. And then thirdly, and this is maybe most evident in Psalm 25 itself, contributing to David's distress, is that he is dealing with serious sin in his past, serious sin in his background, at least in the distant past, perhaps in the more recent past. He is working through, processing past sin and regret and failure. Now, we don't know David's exact circumstances. We're not able to perfectly reconstruct his situation from reading the Psalms and taking the clues we're given, but nonetheless, there are a few of the, excuse me, these are a few of the factors contributing to David's distress and David's situation. Now, in this sermon, Rather than preaching Psalm 25 in its entirety, I want to isolate one of David's burdens in this psalm, and that is that third contributor to his distress. I want us to consider David's awareness and sense of the greatness of past sin and regret in his own life. And I want us to learn from David's perspective as he looks for a way forward through past sin and regret. I personally think that most Christians actually struggle with this very issue. Uh, Perhaps some of you coming into this service today, you come in with baggage, you come in with past experiences that if we were to know them would make you ashamed. Many Christians are aware of perhaps a particular episode in their background, a particular dark blot or heinous sin or some act of betrayal against God in some way. Or maybe it's not one particular episode. Maybe it's a season of life that was marked by unusual rebellion against God. Maybe even as a disciple, there was this period where you just lived in a way that makes you so ashamed. I think many Christians uh, walk around with and struggle with past sin and regret. And it can have the effect of paralyzing them in their relationship with the Lord, in their enjoyment of the context of gathered worship and receiving the means of grace, and can even paralyze them in their sense of their own usefulness in service to Christ. But what we can forget is that the Bible does provide a path. It prescribes a way forward through sin and regret, and that is what I want to talk about this morning from Psalm 25. Indeed, that's the title of my message, A Way Forward Through Sin and regret. We're going to limit our consideration of this psalm to verses 6 through 14. So my text is Psalm 25, verses 6 through 14. Four things I want you to notice in this psalm. Number one, consider with me David's humble acknowledgement of great and long-standing sin. David's humble acknowledgement of great and long-standing sin. Before appreciating how David makes his way forward through sin and regret, we have to appreciate something of the nature of his sin and regret. What exactly has happened? What exactly is on David's mind? What is in his experience, on his conscience, that he brings into this passage? Well, obviously, like I said, we're not given the details. We don't know the precise context of Psalm 25. It could have been written in the context of David's great betrayal and his sin with Bathsheba, Uh, It could be in that season of rebellion where he was hiding that sin from the Lord. That's certainly the situation that's in view in a number of other psalms, but we don't know in this passage. David maintains something of a veil over the precise sin in his background, and I'll just say personally, I'm thankful he does that because it would keep us from limiting the application of the passage. It's much easier because David does not designate the exact details of his circumstances. It's easier for us to read in our unique situation into David's own experience as he processes his sin. Though we can't determine the precise context, he does give us some clues as to the kinds of things that are in his mind. One of the commentators, Gerald Wilson, argues that verse 11, if you're trying to find a structure to the psalm, he argues that verse 11 is the center of the psalm. I mean, literally, it's the center in terms of order, but he identifies it as the thematic center of Psalm 25. So in verse 11, we read, David says, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Again, though we don't know the details, we learn in verse 11 that there's some sin, some past guilt, 
some wicked act or some rebellious season in his life that looms large in David's mind. We don't know exactly what it is. That said, I highly doubt that David is offering a general sort of repentance for sin. I don't think David's saying, well, you know what? I, I sin every day. There's lots of sins in my life, and I'm just going to you know, ask God to forgive me because I know there's just lots of sins in my life. It seems to me, I think this is right, that David has something singular and specific in his mind. He's contemplating an actual episode from his background, and he's saying, Lord, pardon my sin, that sin, or that season of sin, because my sin is very great. I believe David is likely focusing on a past sinful episode, a past season in his life, and whatever it is, as David asks God for pardon, he acknowledges, uh, my guilt, this sin, this thing in my background is very great. We learn more in verse 7 about the nature of David's sin. We read there in verse 7, David prays, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Again, Jared Wilson, one of the commentators, in commenting on this psalm suggests that the first line of verse 7, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, he recommends that that first line be understood as David referring to what Wilson calls long-standing sin, or sin that has a long history. He's not just talking about something he did when he was a boy or when he was a teenager or something like that. He's talking about sin that's had a long history. It's long-standing sin. He's acknowledging sin from his past, sin of long-standing guilt. Now, perhaps this was a besetting sin that David had repeatedly fallen into. Perhaps he has in mind an episode of pronounced wickedness and sin against the Lord that is somehow still with him though many years have passed. Perhaps he has in mind sin that he has never properly confessed or addressed, or perhaps he's thinking upon a sinful episode that's just so large in his experience and in his conscience that he wonders, could God really forgive that? That great dark blot in my background. All of these things, any of these things, I think could be in David's mind when he says, remember not the sins of my youth, my sins of long standing." But appreciate what it is we're seeing here from David in those two verses, verse 11, verse 7. What's David doing in these verses? Well, I can tell you what he's not doing. He's certainly not evading. He's not hiding. He's not making excuses. He's not blaming it on his parents or his upbringing. He's not covering up. He's not living out some kind of fiction about himself. What we see, brothers and sisters, is David candidly and humbly acknowledging his great and long-standing sin before the Lord. Just a quick word before leaving this point. We have to appreciate all of the blessings that are contained in Psalm 25, and there are wonderful blessings we're going to see in a few moments. But all of the blessings that David anticipates in Psalm 20, 25, they are forfeit without this kind of candid, and frank expression of repentance. Without this kind of owning of his sin, acknowledging frankly and candidly his sin before God. Brothers and sisters, the benefits, the benefits, the blessings, the joys that proceed from repentance do not belong to those who hide their sin but to those who repent and follow after the Lord. We need to appreciate this from the beginning because it's all good news from here. But without this kind of candid and frank admission of great and long-standing guilt, these blessings we will not enjoy. And so David confesses his sins in anticipation of the blessings. All right, now consider with me secondly. That was David's humble acknowledgement of great and long-standing sin. Secondly, consider with me the grounds for David's hope of forgiveness and restored relationship with God. The grounds of David's hope of forgiveness and restored relationship with God. I'm tempted to say, uh, to appreciate this point, what you really should do is just go listen to last week's sermon from our brother Robert Fisher. It was just a sweet and profoundly encouraging message. He preached from Psalm 130, 
verses 3 through 4, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Because that sermon was the sermon last week, I'm going to spend a little less time on this point than I would otherwise, but I want you to appreciate that the hope that is expressed here in our psalm in Psalm 25, it's the same hope that was expressed in Psalm 130 that we saw last week. It's the same hope that was expressed in Psalm 51, which I preached from, I think, a few weeks ago or maybe a month ago. Look what David says in verses 6 and 7. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. If, if we look carefully at verses 6 and 7, I believe David is setting up a contrast. A contrast here between his personal long-standing sin, his sin with a long history, and God's mercy and steadfast love that is from of old. I think he's saying, yes, my sin has a long history. It's been with me for many years. It's from my youth, maybe 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. My sin has a long history, but God's mercy and His steadfast love have a more ancient heritage. Like they go further back than my sin could go. His goodness, His mercy, His steadfast love has a longer record, a longer lifetime than these sins of long-standing guilt in my life. Then, if that is the case, this amounts to the idea of the song we sing. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. I think that's the idea. My sin's got a long history. My guilt is great. But the steadfast love and mercy of God, they are, they're from of old. They trump the 20 years, the 30 years this thing has been with me. And it's like then the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, where sin abounded what? Grace abounded much more. My guilt is long-standing. My guilt has a long history, but God's mercy and steadfast love, they are from of old. They have ancient roots. They predate my youth. And therefore, I could hope that my sin record will be overwhelmed by the greatness and the immensity of God's greater mercy and steadfast love. David's hope is that God's mercy and love would prove greater than this sin that was so great and that had such a long history. And notice the way he frames it in verse 7. After reminding God of his mercy and steadfast love, he says, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me. Appreciated what our brother Robert said last week. He said, it's not as though David's suggesting that God has amnesia, that God has short-term memory loss. Okay, don't remember my sins, like just you know, forget about them. God knows our sins. God doesn't suffer from amnesia. But what is it that David is asking of God? He's asking God, don't think of me according to that sinful episode in my past. Don't think of me according to that season of rebellion. Lord, please think of me and your thoughts toward me. Think of me according to your mercy and according to your steadfast love. Remember not my sins. Don't put your mind and your eye on them. Don't look at them, but rather look at your attributes of mercy, your attributes of love. He is saying, I so need God to think of me not according to what I did, not according to the dark mark in my past, not according to that season of betrayal and rebellion. I so need God to think of me according to, in the context of His steadfast love and mercy. It's akin to what David says in Psalm 51, hide your face from my sins. David says also in Psalm 51, my sins are ever before my face. Like he sees them for what they are. He sees the mountain of sin. He sees the dark blot. And he says, Lord, I need you to hide your face from my sins. It's so interesting. If we hide our sins we will not experience everlasting life and will not experience forgiveness. And yet our hope is in God's willingness to hide His face from our sins and to remember them not and rather to think upon us according to His steadfast love and mercy. 
before leaving this point, I want to give you an illustration. You could imagine, maybe it doesn't take much imagination, maybe you know of a situation like this. You could imagine a married couple, husband and a wife, and unbeknownst to the wife, early on in the marriage, first year or two of marriage, husband is traveling a lot, and he commits a singular act of infidelity. He cheats on his wife. And he's ashamed. It was, it was this momentary lapse of his integrity, and he decides, I'm not going to share this with my wife. And he continues to be married to his wife for years and years. But this is always in his mind, it's always in the back, that this thing happened, this thing is in my background. There was a betrayal of our covenant. But he lives as a faithful husband before his wife for 20 years. He's an exemplary husband. He's an exemplary father. In every way, he proves himself to be a man of peerless integrity. But this issue is still with him. And on their 20th anniversary, he turns to her and he says, Honey, I have to tell you something. And he confesses his sin to his wife. He says, Years ago, I failed you and I broke our covenant in the most terrible way. And I so need you to forgive me. And wonderfully, they work on this together. Maybe they talk to a pastor about it, or they do some counseling together, they have lots of conversations together, maybe read a book with one another, and, and she wonderfully forgives her husband, and in, in the context of anticipating and experiencing that forgiveness, he says to his wife, honey, I just, I need to know that you don't think of me according to that deed. I want to ask you to think of me according to the man you know me to be, the man I've been the last 20 years since this episode took place, your loving husband, the father of your children, the man who has sought to keep covenant faithfully with you. Don't think of me according to that, that momentary failure. Think of me according to the man I have become. Who couldn't have sympathy with that man? Who couldn't have sympathy with that woman? I want you to appreciate that's not at all what David does here. He doesn't say to God, Remember me not according to the sins of my youth, but remember me according to my better days. Remember me according to the best week I ever had in your service. Remember me when I was at my most faithful. Remember me as I joyfully led the procession of your people into the household of God to worship you. He doesn't do that. He he never allows his record to come into the equation, to come into God's view. David is saying, if I'm to have any hope, I cannot direct God's gaze to my record, even my best days. He says, everything I lack needs to be compensated not in my performance and my resolution to do better. Everything I lack must be compensated in you in the greatness of God's mercy and God's love. He says, don't look at my sin. Look at yourself and your covenant faithfulness and your determination to be merciful and loving in my case. Now, I'll just ask again before leaving this point, how does a Christian pray this prayer in the new covenant? I hope you pray this prayer. Lord, remember not my sin of long-standing guilt. Remember not the sins of my youth. Remember me according to your steadfast love. Where is the steadfast love of God most convincingly and brightly shown, proven, displayed? God demonstrates His love toward us, Romans 5, verse 8, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so how do you pray this prayer in the new covenant? You say, Lord, remember not the sins of my youth, pardon my long-standing guilt, remember me according to your Son the Lord Jesus Christ. I need you to think of me, to view me, to see me in union with Him. I need you to appraise my life and my relationship with you through what Jesus Christ, my Savior, has done for me. That's what it means to ask God to remember us according to His mercy and steadfast love. Because it's in the person of Jesus that God's mercy and steadfast love is most powerfully displayed. Okay, point number three. We've seen First of all, David's humble acknowledgement of great and long-standing sin. Secondly, the grounds for David's hope of forgiveness and restored relationship with God. Consider with me thirdly, the path forward offered to David 
as a forgiven sinner. The path forward offered to David as a forgiven sinner. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. What is the way forward for David through past sins and regret? What is the path for him, having resolutely confronted and confessed his very great and long-standing sin, and having recognized and acknowledged that God is willing to forgive him according to his mercy and steadfast love, where does he go from here? Maybe there are still consequences that extend from his sin. The memory of his sin and his past failure and regrets hasn't disappeared. What does he do now? It's this, verse 8, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. David says, look what I've done. Look at what a mess I've made of my life. Look at how I've failed the Lord. Is there any hope for me? Is there any way forward for me? What do I do? How do I take the next step? Have I compromised every chance, every opportunity at fruitfully serving the Lord for what days remain? Have I forfeited a useful life in God's service? What is the way forward now that I have confessed this great sin of long-standing guilt? What we learn here is that the way forward is found in the Lord Himself and His willingness to take sinners and to enroll them in His school and to instruct them in the way that they should go. And David recognizes now this means him. He recognizes, he realizes there is a way forward. I am to bring myself now, whatever's gone before, whatever is in my past, whatever great betrayal or dark blot is back there, I am to take myself and put myself under the Lord's instruction. There is a path forward for David. It's not to wallow in shame and regret. It's not to attempt some program of penance. It's not to withdraw from God and from His people in shame. Rather, it is to submit oneself to the Lord's discipleship, to His instruction, to learn His ways, to walk in the paths that He lays out for His people. As David goes on to say, verse 9, He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. Verse 12, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will God instruct in the way that He should choose. What we need to see is that David's past sin wasn't the end of the story for him. David's betrayal, David's sin, David's failure and regret, it wasn't final and fatal for him. David's sin wasn't the conclusion. He needed to become the object of God's special mercy and love. And the course that this mercy and love took for David was to sweetly draw him into channels of instruction and teaching and obedience. David has the assurance the Lord Himself is willing to become my instructor, my teacher, my mentor. He would show David how to walk and how to live in uprightness and godliness. He would show David the way forward through sin and regret. You could imagine, maybe some of you athletes, you've gotten some terrible injury, and you might have a, a, a PT coach or something like that who takes you through various exercises of physical therapy and teaches you how to walk and to move and to gain back your mobility and to do things for the team. What we learn here is God is willing to do that for His people. David sinned in some great way. Perhaps he thought he forfeited a fruitful future in service to God, but he recognizes, no, God is willing to take me and roll me in His school and bring me under His discipleship, His mentorship, His care to teach me how to walk in the paths of the Lord. He might have looked at his life and thought, you know, I've ruined it. I've brought my life to nothing. Look at my long-standing sin. Look at my great guilt. I've got nothing to live for. I've got nothing certainly to offer the people of Israel or my family or anybody. I've compromised any ability to be a fruitful believer. I've got no path forward. Maybe he had those thoughts. But here in Psalm 25, he recognizes that line of thinking is wrong. 
That is not the way God would have him think. That is not the way a forgiven sinner thinks about the path forward. God is pleased to instruct sinners in the way. He shows them how to make a way forward. He teaches the humble His way. He instructs him in the way that he should choose. There is a future for sinners. There's a future for people who feel like they've blown it. There's a future for people who feel like they've compromised a fruitful life in service to Christ because of some terrible act of sin and wickedness in their background. There's a future for sinners, David learned. And it is to walk in obedience to God and in the paths and in the ways and under the instruction that God would show him. David recognized he didn't forfeit a God-honoring life by his sin. Rather, his sin became the context for God to bring instruction to him and to teach him how to walk and how to live. So friends, how do we move forward through our sin and regret? It's by submitting our lives to the ways of God and His instruction, regardless of what's gone before. We say now, by the mercy and love of God, I will submit myself to His instruction. I will follow His commands. By saying to Him, I've not lived as I ought to have lived. And I recognize that. I see that. I candidly and humbly acknowledge my sin for what it is. My sin, my guilt has been great. I have things in my background, in my past that make me so ashamed. But I'm asking You, Lord, to remove them from me not to think of me according to those things, to remember them not. And now I'm asking you with whatever time that is left, show me how to live. Instruct me in the way that you want me to go. I submit myself, I enroll myself as a humble sinner in need of correction, in need of discipleship, in need of instruction, in need of the care of God to teach us how to walk in the paths of righteousness. That's how you move forward through your failures and through your sins and through your regrets by coming to God and asking Him, Lord, now, now, I've not been what I ought to have been, but now, would you lead me in the paths of righteousness? Would you allow me to take classes in your school? And would you instruct a sinner like me in the way? Six or seven years ago, I applied to an academic program And when I applied for that particular program, the admission standards were quite high, and it was very complex, and they were very involved. And uh, the admission standards were such that I almost felt like not doing the program because it was quite a lot of work to prepare the profile they wanted. I needed all kinds of letters of reference from professors and from pastors and from employers. I needed a signed document from my wife saying that she approved of me enrolling in the program. I needed to sit feels like for countless interviews uh, with department heads and different people connected to this program. I had to come on campus and take a six-hour exam. There were all these admission standards. just felt overwhelming. In God's school, there are admission standards. If you want to enroll in this kind of a school and submit yourself to His instruction, there are admission standards, two admission standards in particular. First of all, if you want to enroll in his school, you have to be a sinner. You have to be a sinner. If if you're perfect, if you're an angel, if you're some righteous saint with no sin in your life, you're not allowed to be in God's school. If you want to enroll in God's school and benefit from his teaching and his instruction and to come under his discipleship, the first admission standard is that you have to be a sinner. So do you have that checked? If you have that check, that's 50% of the application. You've got to be a sinner. Because we read, don't we, in verse 8, good and upright is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in the way. It's like righteous people need not apply. We're only taking sinners into this school. Okay, but there is a second admission standard into the Lord's school and to experience this kind of instruction from the Lord. It's not enough that you just be a sinner You have to be a broken and humble sinner. You have to be a penitent sinner. You have to be someone who sees themselves as a sinner and in need of the grace of God. That's what we read in verse 9. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. You have to come to God in recognition of your great guilt 
and of your long-standing sin and all your past sins and regrets that make you ashamed and say, Lord, I submit myself to you. I look for your mercy and your steadfast love and I want to enroll in your school and come under your training and under your instruction. The way this was put in Jesus' own words when he was among us, he said, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. You have to know you have a burden of sin and you have to be willing to give that over to Jesus and he will bear your sin burden and he'll save you from your sins. But you also have to take the yoke in all humility Lord, I want to come under your instruction, under your discipleship. I want to be one of those humble sinners who looks to you and to whom you look. And I want a way forward through all my mess. I want a way forward through all my sin and failure and my regret. And I have heard that you can give it to me. You can teach it to me. So I humbly look to you. Will you take me in your school? And my promise is to you, 100% of the people who meet those admission standards, to be a sinner to have a track record, to have baggage, you've got to have those things. And you've got to see your need for a Savior. You must be a humble sinner. And 100% of the applicants who meet those requirements, God will enroll in His school and He will show them the way forward through their sin and regret. I have one more point I need to wind to a close here. We've seen David's humble acknowledgement of great and long-standing sin. The grounds for David's hope of forgiveness and restored relationship with God, the path, the path forward offered to David as a forgiven sinner. Now, fourthly and finally, the benefits that belong to David despite his past sins and failures. The benefits that belong to David despite his past sins and failures. Look with me at verse 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. Now listen to these benefits. Verse 13, his soul shall abide in well-being. Brother, sister, that thing that's in your background, that great and wicked sin, that season, that occasion, that episode that is the cause of so much regret, does not have to lead you to forfeit your soul abiding in well-being. The Hebrew word is prosperity. You will prosper. Your soul will live forever, even with all that baggage and all that sin. This is akin to what the Lord said to the thief on the cross. How much sin and failure and regret did that man bring to Jesus? And yet the Lord says to him, this day you will be with me in paradise. You don't need to forfeit a future of well-being and prosperity and everlasting life in service to the Lord. Then he says, verse 13b, his offspring shall inherit the land, first given as a special covenant promise to the people of Israel, of whom David is a member. The offspring of this kind of a faithful man would inherit the land, literally the land that God gave to his chosen people. But what we learn in the new covenant is that the land promise is enlarged not just to be a piece of real estate in Mesopotamia, but rather the whole world, such that God's people will inherit the earth. And the promise is that for those who look to God and come under His instruction and repent of their past sins and failures, they do not forfeit living forever in the kingdom of God. And then verse 14, the sweetest of all blessings, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. And He makes known to them His covenant. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. You, you hear David's expectation. In the context of all his sin and regret and failure, his long-standing guilt, his long-standing sin, despite that, I have not forfeit the friendship of the Lord. Brother, sister, you can still be friends with God despite what sins are in your background. For all those who are weary, for all those who are ashamed, for all those who are aware of terrible and sinful things in their backgrounds, you do not need to forfeit the friendship of God. If you come to God as a humble sinner, as one of those who fears the Lord, you submit yourself to His instruction you can still experience the friendship of the Lord, which is 
better than anything. You might be looking at consequences that have extended from your sin and how they grieve you, how you wish so much you could go back and change the past. But my friend, you haven't lost friendship with God. You haven't lost His determination to love you, to draw you into intimate fellowship and communion with Him. That is still yours if you come to Him and you look to Him. I want to close with just a few lines of application. I've not been a pastor for long, but in the years that I've been in the ministry, it's been eye-opening to me to see uh, just how overwhelming some Christians find their past sins and failures to be. Many people, many people, I'd even say the majority of Christians, in my experience, struggle exactly with this kind of a thing, aware of great sin, great evil in their backgrounds, great regrets, great failures. And my observation has been that many of the problems present in the lives of the Lord's people extend from not properly dealing with the sins and regrets of the past. So many people, so many problems in their lives, they're somehow connected in some way to that great sin in their background, or this or that sinful episode or season, and there's been no resolution. They haven't processed their sin and their failure according to the principles of God's Word, and what's so sad to see is that they suffer for it. And there's all kinds of internal confusion that stems from it, and they become paralyzed, and they become neutralized, and they become impotent and ineffectual in the Lord's service, and their zeal for the things of God then begins to shrink, and the joys of a good conscience elude them, and even the sweetness of reading God's Word and of gathering with God's people in corporate worship, they just become somehow spoiled, because there it is. It's always there can't get away from it. I can't find a way forward through my sins, my failures, and my regrets. I've preached this sermon in the hopes that it will help some of us who are in that place. And in closing, I want to say what has been implied in this message as clearly as I know how to say it. What is the Christian way forward through sin and regret? Brother, sister, you're hearing this message. I don't have to have any more conversation with you. You've already isolated that thing. You've isolated that season in your background. Like, I know exactly what he's talking about. I know what that is for me, and it has always been with me for five years, for 10 years, for 25 years, for 40 years. I've been walking around with this for a long time. There is a way forward through sin and regret. And without sounding reductionistic or overly simplistic, it's three steps. Number one, brother, sister, you need to look with an open face at your sin and acknowledge it for what it is. Candidly and openly acknowledge your sin to God. These benefits of friendship with God, of being the object of His covenant love, of having a clean conscience, of being fruitful in His service, they don't belong to the impenitent. So accept, brother, sister, it happened. It happened, and you did it. Look it in the face and call it what it is and bring it to God and tell Him what He already knows. Tell Him this is there, Lord, and it's been there for a long time. And I'm not going to hide this from you. You see it already. I know you know me from the beginning. You know the number of hairs on my head. Nothing has happened in my life that hasn't happened in plain view of your eye. Acknowledge it for what it is and agree with God's opinion about your sin. That's step number one. Step number two, and so many Christians struggle with this step. Embrace the forgiveness of God. Embrace, accept, allow God's forgiveness and His love in Jesus Christ to overwhelm your heart and to cleanse you of every stain of sin. And if you need a help in this, go to some of the passages we've been considering this summer in the Psalms. Go to Psalm 130 and read it as God's Word to you. 
There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Receive that as God's assurance. He pardons you of your sin if you come to Him in humble repentance. Think on a passage like Psalm 103, verse 10. He does not think of us according to our iniquities. He does not repay us according to our transgressions. See Jesus dealing so sweetly and tenderly with the prostitute at His feet who's cleansing His feet with her tears and with her hair. What does He say to her? Your sins are forgiven. Receive the assurance of pardon and forgiveness and cleansing that is offered to you in the Word of God. David needed to get to this point. That sin of long standing, that sin with a long history, it's gone. It's forgiven. It's wiped out. And God does not think of me according to that sin. When He remembers me, when He thinks on me, He thinks on me according to the steadfast love and mercy shown in Jesus Christ. But there is a third step. You want to way forward through sin and regret. There's a third step. And this is the one, sadly, that so many Christians fail to recognize as, as the way forward. Submit yourself now with whatever time you have left. Submit yourself to the instruction of the Lord, to the ways of God. He does instruct sinners in the way. He takes people with big regrets and terrible, heinous sins who have carried out egregious wickedness, who have denied Him, who have betrayed Him in some way. He takes them in hand and He instructs them in the way that they should go. He tells them, let me show you how to walk. Let me show you how to live. Let me show you my commands. He becomes your instructor. But you have to see, that's, that's the next step. That's the way forward. God isn't done with me. I haven't forfeited a fruitful life. There is a way to be fruitful in the service of the Lord. I fear Him. I humble myself before Him. And He instructs sinners in the way. Whatever is in my background and whatever consequences have extended from my sin, He will still teach me how to live. And He'll do so gently. He'll do so lovingly. We have some educators here. I know we have some homeschooling parents here. You ever taught a child handwriting? What do you do? You, you, you draw a model, an example of an A. And then what does the child do with his little timid four-year-old, five-year-old hand or whatever the case may be? He tries to trace after you and, and he makes a crooked line going across the A. And what do you do? You say, okay, good job. This is a step in the right direction. Now let me help you again. You notice, you notice this line's crooked. I'm going to put my hand on your hand now, and I'm going to help you draw that line straight, because we want that nice and straight. That's how the Lord deals with sinners in His school. Again, to use that illustration of the athlete or someone who's had some terrible injury, you ever, you ever known someone, or maybe you've been in this situation, you're in some terrible accident, and there's fear, there's always those hours, sometimes it's days. Will he ever walk again? Will she ever be able to stand up again? And maybe you've seen when there's been fear of paralysis, it's, it's this way, if you've seen videos of it, there's like poles going out like this, and you put your arms on the poles, what do you do? Tremblingly, you walk. And then you take that next step. And there's always someone by the side of those people to help them. Or there's someone in front of them cheering them on. Come on, come on, one more. Put that left foot forward. Come on, right foot forward. Come on, hold on, you got this. Those people so often feel, I'll never walk again. What kind of life am I going to have? Will I ever be able to to walk and be fruitful and do the things that I want to do. And it's so, so extraordinary to see these people learning how to walk and to see those people by their side helping them and teaching them and showing them how to take the next step. My friend, God will do that for you. You may feel like you've blown it and you've broken up your life into a million pieces. 
But the good news for you this morning is that God, because He is good and upright, instructs sinners in the way. There is a way forward through sin and regret. It is to confess our sins to the Lord, to accept forgiveness from His hand, and to follow in the paths and in the way that He reveals to us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, there is in this room now hundreds of sins that are hidden from view, known only perhaps to ourselves and to you. We don't want to hide our sins. We don't want to fake with you. We know you don't receive fakers. We look to you, Father, humbly acknowledging our sins. We put our finger on those episodes and those seasons and our backgrounds, our sin of long standing and our guilt that we know is great. We want to bring those things before you now. Asking, Father, that according to your mercy and according to your steadfast love and according to your commitment to see us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, don't think of us, please, Father, don't remember us according to our sins. Think of us and remember us according to your love and mercy. And Lord, we pray that for all those who feel that the sins are just too great, that the regrets are just too large, that there is no way forward after what I've done, may you convince them sweetly from your word as it's gone out this morning that there is a way forward for them. May you convince them even in the elements we partake of now that the covenant that you give to us is a covenant for sinners. That the sacrament you give to us is a sacrament for sinners. That your instruction, your word, it's given to sinners. That they might know how to live and know how to walk. May we know and experience you, Lord, as our teacher, as our instructor, as the one who leads us in the paths of righteousness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.